0: So we've been here together now for pretty much a whole day, engaging in the the formal practices, the yoga, and the postures, and the breath work, and the meditation, the sitting, and the walking forms, various activities that uh, go with all of that, the meals and. Unstructured time. And it can seem perhaps that we've come here to learn about meditation. We've come here to learn about yoga. Hmm, That's true. That's part of what's here. Part of what's on offer. And yet at another level we're really here to learn about our life and to learn about our minds and our hearts and the forms and the practices that we can call yoga or meditation are really vehicles for that learning, for that journey of discovery. To, to meet our life, to meet our heart, our mind, and to learn in and through that meeting, that encounter. That's really what this is about. When I began my practice, some seems like to me many years ago now, in India, One of the first books I discovered, having uh, attended a retreat and being interested to read more about what I'd been doing, was a book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by um, an English man who had become a monk in Sri Lanka many years before, Nyanaponika, Tara, which means elder. He'd been a monk for many years, so therefore he was called an elder. And uh, in the introduction to this book, he uh, said something which struck me. And uh, amongst many other pithy and useful uh, teachings within it, he it, he observed that as human beings we're in this condition, which he described succinctly as this heart mind. He actually used the word mind, but I'm translating it as heart mind because I think what we're talking about here. And um, Helen used the word chitta last night. Where, where what the teachings refer to is the what we talk about chitta includes the sense of heart and mind it's that which is affected by life and also responds to life in many ways and anyway he says this heart mind is bound all over this heart mind is bound all over and yet it can know freedom here and now in a way a very succinct restatement of the Buddha's fundamental teachings of suffering and the end of suffering. Together, both of these need to be understood and what it means to get to know how this mind and heart becomes and is bound and how it also has the potentiality for freedom, for release from that entanglement, that bondage. This is really what... I was going to say we're interested in here, but maybe I should say this is what I'm interested in here, and I hope that you are also interested in. Maybe uh, if you're not, then uh, my wish is to try and interest you in this possibility. So the Buddha once said, and this is a a passage I really like to, to quote. He once said this heart mind is luminous brightly shining naturally radiant Now you might hear that uh, phrase and you might think hmm doesn't sound like my heart mind which seems more like confused or reactive or busy or sleepy or any number of things all at once He said this heart mind is luminous brightly shining It is afflicted or clouded by forces and attachments that come from outside the mind, that visit it. And this is an interesting teaching, an important teaching, that that which us afflicts us, that which clouds the mind, we could say, and the heart, that which afflicts the heart and the mind, visits it. He said. And that this is something not understood by those who have not wisdom. And therefore they don't train their minds. That's what he said. If you don't understand this, you don't engage in the training of heart and mind. And so looking at what's going on here from that perspective or that sort of, in a way, jumping off point, we can see that a lot of what happens when we engage in Spiritual practice is an encounter with, we could say, visitors, forces, energies, experiences, patternings and conditionings, which are challenging to us, which are challenging to the meditative process. And classically these are described, and some of you will have heard them listed in this form many, many times. As craving, or desire and grasping. As aversion, or so we could say fear and anger and hatred. As restlessness and agitation. Sloth and drowsiness, heaviness, dullness. And sceptical doubt is the fifth. These five energies, these experiences that we're all familiar with, that we all encounter, are powerful forces that arise in our experiences, not just in meditation, Not just when we're practicing here in the different forms. And when I say meditation, I'm including the forms of practice that we might call yoga or that we might call meditation. Meditation is a yoga. And likewise, yoga is a meditation. And so these forces, when we don't recognize them, when we don't see them for what they are, they tend to catch us or carry us or take us away. And it's as if we get pulled off track. We lose contact with a sense of our aspiration, our sort of sense of what is possible for us, what we deeply sort of move to engage with. And we easily get caught up in reactivity and patterns and struggles. And it's as if uh, we're going on a journey somewhere. and We've, we've become diverted. We've, we've gone off doing something else. And here, of course, our journey is very much a journey to where we are. So, what we'll find the effect of these challenges and these patterns and habits of mind is that they end up taking us somewhere else. And therefore, the journey to where we are somehow seems long, difficult, arduous, and complicated. And at one level, of course, it's true. That is so. And yet, at another level, we're already here. And to understand and to realize that and what that means for us is very much at the heart of what we're exploring here together so if we see the various experiences that you've I'm sure some of you at least encountered some of probably most of you if not all of you encountered at least one of those uh forms of experience today and certainly in the groups plenty of people referred to you know sometimes we experience pain but it's not just pain it's the sense of I don't want that or the thought of lunch but it's not just lunch it's like give me some food And likewise, drowsiness um, and doubt, sometimes wondering, you know, can I do this? Can I do this? Will it work? Does it work? I'll speak more about each of them. But we encounter these, if we see them as visitors, it's a useful way to relate to them, to support an appropriate way of responding to what's happening. Just... I'd like to say, with regard to taking notes, I encourage you to really minimise that. I don't know if you can hear me. Um, It's all recorded. You can uh, listen to it again and take notes on it, but there's something useful about just listening fully. And I notice it's hard to do that while taking notes. You might be better at notes than me, so I'll leave that with you. But that's my encouragement, and likewise for anyone. Um, Something about kind of... It's easy to want to receive what we receive here in order to have it for later. In so many ways it's really natural for us. And yet there's something about receiving what's here now, for now. that's kind of radical and challenging, but actually very potent. So if we see what comes to us as, as visitors, as guests, it's like, what's the appropriate way to treat guests? Well, of course, we might welcome them in. We might say, hello, yeah. Nice to meet you. But we probably don't hand them the keys to our house and say, "Okay, it's all yours. That would seem a little strange, wouldn't it? And yet it's very easy for that to happen. We almost forget who lives here. And we hand over control and it seems that sort of the, the direction of our experience to these patterns of reactivity that arise because we tend to identify with them. We tend to think they're who we are and that we somehow need to fix them. Or get rid of them, or go along with them. And yet, there's another way that we can learn to meet the various things that arise that, you know, we say, so come along, sit down, be relaxed, upright, steady, you know, that all sounds pretty straightforward, then maybe pay attention to your breath, you know, and if we were to describe that to, you know, a five or six year old child, they'd probably think, oh, I can do that, yeah, no trouble. Or likewise, if we went down to the You know, the pub or club we like to hang out and tell someone, oh, you know, you think it will be difficult to just attend to your breath exclusively for five minutes? Mostly we'd think that shouldn't be too hard. But of course you know, I don't need to convince you on this, I'm sure, we know having done that, how challenging that is. And so we're probably curious a little, how come it's so difficult? It sounds simple. And yet what happens is we tend to get into the sense of I need to either go with everything that comes along and... Follow what it 's suggesting, or I need to somehow stop it doing that, make it shut up and go away. and we either get lost in or struggle with our experience. so I was reflecting on this theme a couple of years ago, and it was very interesting that, as I was doing so um, one of one of my two cats um, came. First of all, started scratching at the door, and I kind of let it in, and then it, it came, and it kind of wanted to jump on my lap and get some attention, and it's very sweet and lovely. And uh, at the time, I was trying to concentrate on what my, you know, reflecting on the talk, and so I thought, what am I going to do? I sort of tried to encourage it to go that way, and it wouldn't. I thought I can put it, lock it outside the door, and then it goes and sort of scratches at the door. So I let it in, it jumps in my lap, walks on my page, you know, and it's like I was noticing I was getting a bit irritated and then I thought, okay, you know, it feels like if I pick this guy up and hold him, it's going to, you know, it's going to take all day. He's, gonna, I know, he likes a lot of attention. And yet, interestingly, if I lock him out, he's just going to cause me more irritation by scratching at the door. So what actually happened was in the end I picked him up and having picked him up, he just sort of, you know, rubbed up against me a bit, then he curled up in my lap and went to sleep. and it was absolutely no problem while I worked and reflected on the talk. And it was, as, as I was doing that, I thought, oh, this is very interesting. That's kind of like what happens, isn't it? Here we are meditating and then something comes along and it sort of scratches at the door and either it seems cute or it doesn't look so cute, depending. Um, and mostly we think either I've got to kind of cuddle it all day, which is what it seems to warn, or I've got to lock it outside the door. But it keeps on trying to get in. So, what we can actually do is begin to reflect on what's happening here. If we can see these patterns of reactivity that aren't just a feature of meditative life, they tend to go on throughout our lives, but we don't always notice them because we don't still, or we don't make the conscious choice to be more still and reflective and not just habitually responding in the way we make that choice here. And so the, these, these reactivities or patterns of, of craving, of wanting, of fear and aversion, of restlessness, of sleepiness or of doubt, they have their power because they kind of distort what's going on or they distort our ability to see clearly. It tends to color the way we interpret what's going on. And again, as I said, we either... Th- tend to think, I need to believe that. It's really true when I'm feeling sort of kind of grumpy that everything is really bad and miserable and horrible and hopeless. Like, you know, it's cold and it's wet and it's damp and it's supposed to be summer. uh, You know, and we think, really, things are miserable. Or I've got to somehow make that thinking stop and go away or make that feeling stop and go away. feels like those are the options. Or we might, you know, being this end of the day, that was the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. Oh, wow, it's lovely, it's beautiful, it's sunny, it's shiny, how nice, how beautiful outside. And then, of course, we realize we completely spaced out on that. We might think, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, I'm supposed to be mindful. And again, the sense of i got to either get into it all or get rid of it. If we can see it for what it is, we don't have to either be lost in it Or get rid of the experience, and this actually goes for any experience, not just these particular forms of experience. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's unflattering that it's taking place. You know, I'd like to be bright and clear and upright, but actually I'm kind of soggy and sort of dozy and wobbly. But that's just how we are. Sometimes happens to me. Happens to you, I guess. And yet it doesn't actually have to be a problem in and of itself. It just needs to be seen for what it is. When we identify, when we tend to believe that these things are who and what we are, then it becomes much more difficult and painful. But if we can just see them as things that arise, that are experiences, that aren't in our control, but that we can learn to respond to skillfully. And I'll speak about those modes of response, if we can learn to respond to these skillfully, then we can actually be present. We can actually, they can allow us to deepen in the quality of contact and connection we have with our experience, with this moment, with what we might call ourselves in a, in a deeper sense, that quality of conscious presence that we kind of recognize as being located here. So, useful to name. Just, oh, it's this. This is what's happening. Okay, I can see it. It's this. Not judging and not saying it shouldn't be happening, it's bad. But it's just something that happens. You know, sometimes when we've been practicing meditation over time, we, we kind of know that it's not really get useful or skillful to get lost in fantasies about things that aren't real. And so when it happens, we think, oh, I shouldn't have done that, that's bad. And then we get into judgments about the fact that we've been having fantasies. And, of course, judgments aren't any more helpful than fantasies. I mean, if you had to take one or the other, I'd probably go for the fantasies myself. But substituting one for the other really doesn't get us anywhere. But we see how we can do that so easily. Then, of course, because we're so busy judging ourselves, we're quite compelled to want to imagine something nicer than this, so we start another fantasy. And sometimes it goes round and round like that. We can spend our whole life in patterns of reactivity like that, unconscious, even of the fact that's what's going on. So, just seeing, we don't have to reject or judge this, but nor do we need to abandon ourselves to it or in it. Sometimes, when these kind of challenges arise, and I, I use the word challenges, traditionally the uh, translation for the, the word the, in, in the uh, original language, the translation was often taken as hindrances, as if it's something that's in the way. And these particular energies. Make it hard for us to be concentrated or focused, in a way for the mind to be still. But in and of themselves, they are not obstacles to meditation. There's a lot we can learn from them. So I find challenges a more useful word to apply, and uh, I find it evokes a response from me that's more helpful. It's rather than hindrances. It's like it's like okay, we're not going to get very far here. There's all these you know boulders on the road. More than oh, challenges. Okay, hmm, let's see how do how do you handle these? Okay, and. Um, and, you know, we might we might think that it's because something's wrong with my practice, you know, I can't do it right, therefore I'm having all these things going on. I'm lost, I'm sleepy, I'm drowsy, I'm, you know, busy, agitated, reactive, all of that, it's because I'm no good at this, but... That's not necessarily so at all. In fact, one of the uh, remarkable things that the Buddha describes in the story of his own awakening is how, on the very night of his awakening, after years of arduous, committed, and wholehearted practice, he encountered all of these forces and he had to deal with them. And that was on the very night he awoke. He discovered the profound depths of freedom, of peace, of compassion that's possible for a human heart, for each of our human hearts. So if he'd concluded halfway through the evening, oh, well, clearly, you know, all these hindrances are arising, all these obstacles, all these difficulties, well, I might as well pack it in, I can't do this. That would have been tragic, wouldn't it? We wouldn't be here right now. And so, you know, we might feel some gratitude, as I, I do personally, just for, wow, the commitment, the practice that this human being put in that led to the so many... Wonderful fruits that take the form, amongst other things, of these teachings and practices that we we have the opportunity to share. And so, so I'm not saying that they're a positive sign, but they're certainly not something we should draw any conclusions about that say we're doing something wrong. We're challenging our conditioning, our patterns, our habits, our unconsciousness, essentially. The habitual and unconscious way... Much of our lives are driven, they don't even live, they're driven by these forces. We're challenging that here in many ways, both obvious and subtle. And this is part of how they arise or come into our experience more strongly, more powerfully, more fully. And in our willingness... And the courage that we need to bring to face what comes here on the cushion, on the yoga mat, in the walking, on the ground, on on the lawn or in the walking room or wherever. And the courage that it asks of us to bring, we are actually very close to the potential for being touched by something that transforms in terms of insight, in terms of waking up. And so there's a, there's a poem by Wendell Berry that speaks to this beautifully. Because, of course, we're often afraid of the difficult experiences. It's painful to be caught up in our reactive minds. We're often afraid of that. It's not what we came here for. We came here to get away from all that. I mean, who came here to have a busy mind running around going, oh my gosh, this doesn't work, why am I still here after you know, all this time? And my mind still won't be quiet. We didn't, that's not what we came here for, I imagine, you know, wake up, body aches, head's dull, later on, you know, body's tired, head's dull, Um, in between a few moments of relative calm maybe, if we're lucky, and yet we begin by meeting our life as it is, that's the only place we can meet it. We can't meet a life that isn't where we are, or the experience that isn't where we are, that's impossible. So we have to be willing to receive what's here. So Wendell Berry, he wrote this lovely poem, um, in which this is a, a section. He, uh, he said, I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it Leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. I find these words very sweet and apt for what's here, in terms of we sit here, leaving aside our tasks and our busyness of our lives. And sometimes in that, what we find difficult arises comes to us. If we can sit with it, we'll find that something transforms in the relationship and when 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 he says it sings and it and I hear its song, it's like we come back into a relationship where there's some communication, there's something being shared that actually has something quite beautiful in it. And this is actually the potential of meeting the places of our challenges and our struggles in meditation. So, learning to work skillfully with the energies and the forces that we encounter, to not try and escape from them. We, we, we try and close down so far as it's possible to, in a sort of external way, limit the number of escape routes that are available here. You might have noticed that that sometimes creates a bit of a sense of being kind of closed in or held in or a bit scary. Or as one person reported this morning, sort of a little claustrophobic it can feel like. It's sort of, whoa. Um, it's not that anyone's getting locked in a cupboard, but we sort of feel the normal ways we escape kind of limited. They're more internal roots and that's part of why also we ask you to really respect and support the silence because there's a way in which sometimes we escape into the talking or the relating or the speaking and that can really have an impact on other people. So it's really important that we do that even if we don't notice that those other people are around because they might be in the next room or around the corner. And so the sense of containing the energy that sometimes wants to kind of discharge what might seem like relatively harmless things, like you know, going and snacking at the fridge or chatting to someone or um, you know turning on the television or the internet—these kind of things we do naturally, easily, it seems, habitually. But if we look at them, if we reflect, we might notice that—and I notice sometimes—before I go to the fridge, there's some sense of kind of feeling a bit dissatisfied or kind of wanting some entertainment or something to sort of pick me up. And it's like, what's the condition which I'm trying to move away from? By going and looking for a you know, a piece of cheese, which is the sort of thing I go and looking for in the fridge or something like that. And it's tough here, isn't it? Here am I talking about going for a piece of cheese and you can't. There isn't any cheese in the fridge, you know, it's just uh milk and soy milk. And rather dry looking herbal tea. You know. So there's a sense of we're left more with ourselves here. It's not easy, but it's it's important. so craving the first hindrance or the first challenge that we might encounter that's spoken of traditionally and we talk about this a lot in meditation seeing how the sense of wanting arises of, I'd like something different or more or other than what I've got you know who doesn't have that experience i have it i'm sure you have it if you don't you know it's all right you don't have to have it it's allowed to not have it but if you do you'll probably recognize how that sense of you know how we're looking maybe it's we just want to feel calm or peaceful and how how much it's sort of like, oh, my mind's busy, my body aches, or I'm sleepy, or, oh, you know, I wish to would be quiet, then I could be calm and peaceful, or, you know, those guys at the front who keep talking, or, you know, I wish to give me some more instructions because I don't understand how it works, and then I could be calm and peaceful, can often be coming out of a sense of trying to get somewhere, wanting to get somewhere, to get some experience, to feel better. Well, when we get that experience, maybe for a moment it suddenly... Ha, huh, this has probably also happened to you all at some moment. We go, ha huh, we're just actually present. How nice. It's peaceful. It's calm here. You know, nobody's sort of hassling me. The birds are singing in the trees. There's, you know, quite nice sort of sunlight on the leaves. If we look. And then a moment after that, it's like, great, I've got it. I'm here. How do I keep it? What do I do? Was it because I did the meditation differently? Was it the time of day, you know? How quickly that urge to keep hold of something comes and tragically, you know, we can't even enjoy it. We're so busy trying to hold on to it. And that's the process, that's the pattern of grasping. I had the very humbling and yet, for me, important and useful experience one year. At, um, I was on a retreat at the Old Guy House, which is the place we had before here, Um a couple of miles across the across the valley there, and uh, on that particular day when I was on retreat, uh, one of the staff made a lasagna, and I just love lasagna. I am just like <clears throat> it's one of my favourite foods, and so I managed to get quite close to the front of the queue without looking like I was rushing to the front of the queue. Cause you don't want to show off, show up, show yourself up like that. And I took what was you know trying to be a relatively moderate portion because you know you be restrained as part of what we do here. This is my mind story, and that, and, uh, but it was actually quite a large, moderate portion, I have to say. Anyway, I took it, and as I got there, I was like, whoa, it's great, you know, it's melted cheese. Mm, you can tell I like cheese. Um, and sort of eating it, and as I was eating it, it was like the sense of, will there be enough for seconds? Will there be enough for seconds? And I was shoveling this in, wondering, will there be enough for seconds? Will there be enough for seconds? And, blah, 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 blah. and I was actually quite anxious through the whole process and stressed. <laughs> And at the end of the eating of this, actually I realised at the end really quite large portion of lasagna I'd taken, I was stuffed. I was really full. I didn't want any more. It didn't really matter whether there was any seconds and I hadn't enjoyed it at all. And it was so sad. There was this thing that I really like, that I didn't get to have that often, and I couldn't enjoy it because I was so worried about could I have more. And it's really instructive for me, really interesting to see, wow, that's what my mind does. Huh. Huh. No wonder we find it difficult to feel a real sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Even when we get the thing that we're looking for, it's so hard to enjoy it. Because we want it to stay around forever. So, in response to the arising or the movement of grasping, of craving, of wanting, of give me, give me, seeing that there's an underlying sense of dissatisfaction and an underlying fear that we'll never find satisfaction going on often in that. And that what we're actually asked to do and what we mean by letting go, when we talk about letting go of desire, doesn't mean you're not allowed to have any lasagna. You know, if someone serves lasagna, you think, "I love that. I better not have any because it just makes me have desire." No, that wouldn't be that great an idea. I don't. I'm not advocating that. But it's more like look at the idea that says, "I want to, I need to, or I have to get some kind of lasting satisfaction from this." Because what we can do is get some enjoyment or pleasure. That's fine, but it's. Actually, often transitory, that's the nature of it. Experience is like that, it passes on, it changes. And if we can start to question the underlying and often unconscious belief that there's something out there that's going to give me lasting satisfaction and only when I find it and get it and get hold of it and keep it, then I'll feel fulfilled, then I'll be happy, then I'll be at peace. That belief, that idea, that often deeply held but unquestioned assumption isn't true. It's just not true. There is nothing in terms of experiences, situations, food, clothes, even people or places which in and of itself can give us that. And that doesn't mean, of course, it's not possible for us to find it. But it's only Found and always found in relationship to our wholehearted willingness to just enter into where we are. Not looking for something else, but interested in what it is that's already here. And desire pulls us away towards something else. So letting go is about being interested to see what might be right here that we might find of meaning, of value, of perhaps a deeper level of satisfaction than just what's pleasant, enjoyable, flattering, or whatever. So the second of the forces, the energies we might encounter, and of course, sorry, just in, with that, with craving, a lot of it here might go towards getting you know good meditation experiences or nice experiences in the yoga, you know. And to sort of notice that, to notice how that goes on, because we're probably mature enough here. I mean, why would you come and do a, a retreat, meditation, and yoga retreat for five days rather than go to some sort of, you know, sort of luxury, sort of health spa where it might just get flooded with pleasant experiences as much as one can, or even just go and lie on a beach, you know, if it's going to be sunny. One isn't into health spas or whatever. It's like probably we have some understanding already that there's something deeper here to be looked for than just. Entertaining ourselves, so, so there that that sense of looking at what's going on with regard to craving, to desire, to wanting, and seeing where we can let go. Let go means not reject the experience, but let go of the idea that this will or has to do it for me. Whatever the it that we whatever we mean by that. So aversion, the second of the. Uh, the traditional sort of um list we could say of, of challenges, of hindrances. the a sense of resistance to our experience we don't like or don't want what's happening. We're afraid of what's coming or where we're angry with what's here. It's kinda of how it goes, you know, we get angry about what's here, we get afraid of what's coming, and we sometimes just don't like or we resist and we notice how we push away experiences, how we reject, how we say, No, I don't want this. I don't like that. My knee hurts. I don't want that. That's not okay. Or my mind is full of fear and agitation. It's not acceptable. I don't want that. Of course, many things we can say likewise in our life. And yet, aversion has this effect of kind of distancing or disconnecting. Rather than pulling out of where we are looking for something else, we're just you know trying to get out of here. Anything else will do. Anything else. Just not this. Not this. Is the way we tend to experience that. And... It's, it's interesting to see how physically we can sometimes, sometimes we, we shrink in fear, trying to contract and withdraw so as not to be impacted, not feel, not experience what's going on. And bodily we can notice a certain tightening that happens when we're caught in fear often, sort of contraction It's part of what we're learning to soften and to relax and open in the practices here. And we can also notice that when we get angry, there's a certain way we sort of puff up, we inflate. You know, we're trying to scare off whatever's threatening to us. You know, and you know that little tickle of uh, sort of hair standing up on the back of the neck. It's like trying to scare away anything that's. Um, you know, that, that when cats get afraid, they get bigger because their hair stands up and they look bigger, trying to scare away. That when our neck tingles when we're a little afraid, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to get bigger. To scare away something threatening. It doesn't work very well. But we notice how it has an impact on our body. So often aversion arises with the experience of pain, of discomfort in the body. And we can encounter that here. It's useful and important that we give attention to that experience. We don't dismiss it. Or we d- and equally that we don't somehow regard it as a, a mark of, of failure or not getting it right. Pain arises when the body is under pressure in some way or form, either because of something structural or something to do with some injury or illness or because actually we're psychologically putting pressure on our bodies, asking our bodies to carry the load because we don't in our mind want to. And so it's useful to see that we're not obliged to react to the painful or the difficult experiences that arise. We don't have to push them away. But nor are we compelled to just have to grit our teeth and bear them. Much more useful is to be interested and say, "Okay, what's going on here? Is this something that actually may be harmful? And if so, to be really respectful, particularly if we have any history of injury or illness with a part of our body that's feeling under pressure. To be really careful, and maybe at times we need to give some support or be more gentle. And yet seeing, of course, that many of the discomforts we encounter aren't actually really threatening to our well-being. They're just discomfort. And that they're part of what it means to have a body. All bodies experience discomfort and pain. It's so the nature of the body is that this is one of its experiences. Equally, as it, the nature of the body is that it can experience pleasure. But they come together. You can't just have one and not the other. The sensory, The sensitivity of our body, equally our heart and mind actually, is such that it can resonate, be touched by those those different elements of experience. And what it's saying is really pay attention here. Look at this. Be interested in what's happening. So sometimes what's really important is to stay with the experience and explore it a little. Maybe feel, oh, what is it like? Rather than getting into, I've got to get rid of it. Rather than reacting to it, it's like, oh, what's here? What's going on? Other times we might see, actually, that's enough. I can't really relax or open to this any further. Or in terms of if we're moving our body, that's far enough. There's no need to stretch it any further. Sometimes there's wisdom in listening to the message, the signal, the pain or discomfort is giving us. But just being attentive to it while we do it, rather than moving away, not wanting to feel it, and just reacting by either... You know, okay, I'm going to grin and bear it or grip my teeth and bear it, depending on your inclination. Or I'm going to just move away and change my posture. Often, the very movement to avoid the experience, the resistance, the rejection, the struggle we get caught up with, isn't so much to do with the experience itself. It's to do with our fear that it's going to continue in time forever. And that not that it's doing any damage now, but that if it keeps going like this, then it's going to be bad, horrible, intolerable, and possibly life-threatening. And it sometimes just takes a matter of a few moments and a few thoughts to get from a twinge in our knee to an image of the hospital sorry, the you know the ambulance arriving at Gaia House and taking us off to the hospital, you know, amputation and disability and tragedy. You know, sometimes it's just a few quick leaps in the mind. As I said, really respectful if there is some vulnerability or injury with your body. But at the same time, just to see how often it's our mind that's under pressure. We don't notice. We get caught in the pressure, the aversion, the fear, the reactivity. And pulled by that often into the future. It's what it does. It takes us away from where we are into the future. And so, kind of then useful to reflect on the, uh, the words of Mark Twain, who said, I quote this probably most t- retreats I teach. Um, he once said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. <laughs> it's like the worst thing is the, way, is the anticipation of what might happen, even though most of the time it doesn't. There's so much suffering in that. That we can learn to free ourselves from. To understand with fear that it's something that's happening here and now. It pulls us into the future worried about what's going to happen based on things that have happened in the past or maybe something that's happening in the present. But it's actually the experience is right here. And so to name it, to know oh this is fear or this is a version of the sense I don't want this, I don't like this. To see if we can be with it. See if we can relax. Just, oh, what's possible here to include, to accommodate this experience? When we name an experience like aversion or fear or anger or even hatred, like I want to, you know, we get angry, we want to push something away or someone away. It's causing me trouble. Hatred, we want to destroy it. But it comes out of the same movement. It's just like I'll do anything, it seems, to get rid of that which I find difficult to bear. That's not easy to receive for me in heart and mind and body. So the third of the, uh, the challenges is restlessness. It's where we kind of feel like there's a lot going on, the mind is going zing ding 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 ding, or well, the body's kind of this and that, and we're shifting around you know sort of have that expression ants in your pants it's like can't quite get steady or comfortable anywhere and there's constantly a a sense of looking for there's got to be just some little thing I can do to sort it out or fix it or make it okay and with this really important to relax it's like there's too much energy, we kind of agitate it's like Can I breathe with this? Often useful to give attention to the out-breath, just breathe out. Yeah, wow, agitation, restlessness, energy. It's like a lot of energy, a lot of energy. And it's sort of out of balance. The energy is out of balance with the, the sense of containment, of stillness, of holding that's available to us in that moment. So often we find our mind going into the past with either remorse or guilt. Or into the future with a sense of fear, anxiety, or excitement. And that's often connected with agitation and restlessness. We can see that. And we get a lot of energy from it. I mean, sometimes that's nice. And other times, of course, when we can't do anything with it, it's quite frustrating and difficult. Particularly if we think we're here to somehow get our mind to be quiet and it's really busy and agitated. So. The the very experiences of desire and aversion can easily stimulate restlessness, often connected with it. And again, just to see it, to name it, oh, it's restlessness. It feels like this. It's not comfortable, but oh, actually, you know, when you could take try an experiment and see, you know, could I be the first meditator to die of restlessness? You know, it's never happened yet. I guess it's possible, but it's not that likely. And yet, sometimes we, react, we respond to it as if it threatens our very life. It's just, again, it's an uncomfortable experience. But to be able to see it, oh, it's just a lot of energy. And it'd be easy if we sort of weren't sitting on a cushion. We could just go running down the street or the road or the lane for a little bit and just kind of burn it off. But we don't do that here. We kind of see, okay, can I include this? Very helpful to give attention to the out breath. When there's restlessness, agitation, stay steady, don't move. Don't start do it do it do it because it only gets worse. See if you can stay steady with it. Give attention to the outbreath, the relaxing, releasing quality of the outbreath. Amplifying or emphasizing your attention to that, and that can start to bring some some space, some holding that allows it to come into balance. Of course sometimes we experience quite the opposite and rather than restlessness, agitation and all that sort of sort of feeling, it's more quite the opposite sort of and we're kind of more sort of heavy and dull and thick and what's going on? You know, the, the sort of the traditional translation of sloth and torpor it even sounds like it, doesn't it? And uh What's important here is that we notice that that's going on. We're thinking, oh, I'm sleepy, I need to sleep. Maybe that we need to sleep, but sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's a way we escape from being present. So, what's often useful is to make a response actively with our body because it's about a lack of energy. And so some physical responses I spoke about in the morning instructions about raising the arms up or lifting the eyes up or lifting the posture up, they're all active physical bodily responses. And, of course, you can even stand up. And you know each is, is sort of like elevating the level of engagement of your body. And you can stand up and put your arms up. You can stand up and put your arms up and stand on tiptoes. And you absolutely will not feel drowsy when you do that. But you've got to want to do that and see that it's possible. So, there's many different ways one can respond to it. These are some of it. The Buddha, amongst some of these, also suggested pulling on your earlobes as a way of bringing some attention and brightness to the mind. Now, personally, I've never found it work particularly well. But it's one of the suggestions he made. And I not know if you've ever looked at images of the Buddha, but I've often reflected and wondered, you know, did he spend a lot of time doing this? Because maybe he had to deal with that too. Certainly he did. So sometimes we need to ask ourselves, do I need some more rest? And if we haven't slept well or we've been very busy and stressed, yeah, sometimes we take a little more rest. That's what we need. Sometimes the rest happens when we're practicing. As you know Helen will say sometimes, you, know, you lie down, you relax, and then if you fall asleep or when you wake up you start again. What else can you do? Now, in the meditation, we tend to sometimes be a little bit more, no, no, come on, stay up if you can, and if you fall asleep, you know. Of course, if you fall asleep, what are we going to say? You're asleep. But when you realize you're asleep, you're not asleep anymore, then it begins again. We can also sometimes just check and ask ourselves, you know, maybe we need some more rest. But sometimes, if it's going on for more than a day or two, so it's not relevant yet, but if by the end of tomorrow or the next day we're still really drowsy a lot, to ask the question, is there something I'm avoiding here? Because it's an escape route. It's one of the last avenues of escape for the mind that doesn't want to meet what's here. Which sometimes it doesn't. We don't. And we might reflect on the sort of the so sort of the example of of sort of great practitioners who've you know one, one, one of the teachers of uh, the main teacher of our friend and teacher here, Martín, Friend of mine, um, I remember um, her describing her um, her teacher, Master Kusan, who was a Korean um, Zen monk, very committed, and um, how he once did, having found himself struggling with drowsiness, did a. Um, actually, I think I read this in in his book, which he translated rather than heard it from, from Martin directly. But he he once, realizing he was struggling with drowsiness, said, "Okay, I'm going to stand on tiptoes for the whole seven day retreat." And he did. And I guess he wasn't drowsy. I mean, that's quite impressive. I'm not suggesting you need to do that. But it's like something in that for me, it's inspiring. It's like, wow, that guy has some real commitment to stay awake. So with sleepiness and drowsiness, what's important is to engage, to respond, and be creative in that. The fifth of the the, uh, the challenges the, uh, that we encounter is very um, familiar patterns of you know, reactivity and entanglement is doubt. And this is very specifically the form of doubt, because sometimes doubt is useful in practice, but this is the form of doubt that has a sort of undermining, a certain kind of sort of defeated sort of heaviness and sort of giving up about it. it's not. There's a sort of kind of questioning that's born of curiosity and interest that has a brightness and, and interest that's sort of like, mm, I don't know about this, what's going on here, I don't know. That's a sort of doubt as well. But the doubt that we're talking about here is that kind of pattern that happens where we start thinking, I don't know, I don't think it's working. I don't think this is any good. I don't these teachings, or, or maybe the teachings are all right, These practices, yeah, maybe they're all right for other people, but me, no, I can't do this. You know, I, I wasn't made for meditation. I am, you know, I'm an active person. I sort, I should be out partying. Yeah, that's what's really, you know, that would be true for me. We kind of sort of we come to a place of sort of collapse, born of a certain undermining, doubting, negating. And it often arises actually in response to some other difficulties or challenges or any of the other things that I've just described, getting caught in aversion or grasping and wanting or restlessness and drowsiness. And, you know, it's really common, someone will... Come and describe the experience and their meditation as I was sitting and I was struggling and I felt like I can't do it; it's hopeless. And you know, and then they give up and look around and it's like everyone else is sitting really still and they all look upright and peaceful and calm and they're probably really mindful. And oh, it's like I'm, yeah, here am I in a room? You know, fifty people who are just almost buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. You know, <laughs> and that sense of it's just me that can't do this and everyone else can. And people will come and talk about that experience. And of course what happens after that is they give up, they close their eyes, they sit there, and the person, you know, two across from them, having gone through much the same thing, looks up and says, oh wow, that person's sitting really still. They're very peaceful. (laughs) This goes on all the time. Or they look across at Helen and I and say, oh, they're really calm and peaceful. You know, and who knows? We might be going through all sorts of things. So, To see how there's a way in which we kind of easily that pattern of doubt is undermining, or it says, oh, you know, Buddhist teachings, well, they were right for Buddhists or for Asians or people, you know, who want to be monks and nuns, but, you know, I live in the world and I'm a Westerner and mm, it's not for me. That kind of thought can happen. Even, I'm not just saying to someone who's new to practice, this can happen in your mind when you've been doing it for 20 years, interestingly enough, and perhaps more subtle forms. And so, again, to see that. What happens is that we, we're often expecting more of us in our practice and our what's more than actually what's reasonable to expect or demand. Actually, as I'm saying that, I'm realizing I've been talking for quite a while. If you're uncomfortable, please feel free to change your posture or stretch your body in some way. Don't feel you're not allowed to move while you're here in this time. Well, there'll be a little bit more to come, I think. Um, so. We often create an unrealistic expectation and then we measure ourselves against it and say, I'm failing, I can't do it. Like, surely by the end of today I should have been able to have my mind be quiet for 40 minutes, you know, and just mindful of breathing. Shouldn't I have been able, it's been a whole day I've been meditating, surely. And if I haven't, then obviously I'm no good at it, or it's not going to happen, you know, why bother? So easily we do that. And then we kind of undermine our aspiration, our sense of possibility. So there's a story that I like of a – I heard from someone of a uh, very um, committed and ardent meditation practitioner who'd been studying and practicing um, for 20 years. And he had the opportunity to have a, 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 a meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he was very pleased that he was going to have this chance just to speak briefly to His Holiness, who he respected and loved very much. And he came and told him, and he said, Oh, Your Holiness, well, wow, I have so many struggles in my meditation. Um, my knees hurt, my mind is busy. At times I don't even really want to do it. And, and you know, and, uh, can, can, you, can you help me find a way to stop this happening? You know." And His Holiness responded, he said, Wow, it sounds really difficult, you know, it sounds really hard. And, you know, it's like that in the early years of meditation. And I actually find this really uplifting. If we think of the first 20 years as the early years, then actually we don't have to have got somewhere in such a hurry. You know, we're right in the beginning of this for many of us. You don't have to have got somewhere. There might be a lot more that's happening here than you realize. In fact, I'm pretty sure that that's true. And so we, we need to start to trust ourselves and trust the process something about faith is really important here not faith in something we don't know or can't you're not saying you have to believe what i'm saying or that something or someone's going to do this for us but more just trusting in the goodness of our aspiration to come here and practice and that some fruit some wholesomeness some benefit will come from this born of the very wholesomeness of your aspiration to come here to be here to stay here and to engage And again, this very form of doubt is something the Buddha encountered on the night of his awakening. You know, the sense of you know, what am I doing here? Trying to get awake, and it comes traditionally described as personified in the form of Mara, who's kind of all the hindrances wrapped up in a package with you know, sort of, sort of. in one sense, it it's, could be seen as a cosmology or a mythology. In another sense, it very much describes the, what happens for us in our minds when we encounter negativity, reactivity, or in this case, doubt. And you know, the Buddha's response to being questioned about his right to be there, like, what are you doing sitting there pretending you can get a light and sitting in that place? You know And he said, actually, the, the tradition reports you know, he touched the earth just to bear witness, inviting the earth to bear witness to all his years and lifetimes, in fact, of practice, all his commitment, and that the earth responded with a sense of yes, it's true. For me, what that represents is the sense of and the Buddha there with his, and the image there with his hand touching the earth. So, what that represents, <coughs> touching, is a sense of yes, this is possible for me, for you, for each of us. To wake up. So it can sometimes be useful when we're struggling with doubt to just remember our good aspirations, our wholesome actions, our good qualities and insights that have come in our life already because they're there. All of us have them. Rather than focusing as we easily do all the things we haven't yet developed, discovered and learned, of which there will still be plenty, of course. But it's like honouring the goodness in us. So important. So important. And to see that these experiences come and go. They arise and pass. At times we're caught in them, it seems. But if we can recognise them and name say, oh, this is doubt, or this is aversion. That's in, That's a pattern of reactivity that's happening in me, or happening to me. But... It isn't actually who and what we are; it's something that passes through to see that that's the case that we're not actually defined by these experiences, even what might sometimes feel like a multiple hindrance attack where it's all coming, you know we hate it we we're grasping, we're aversive, we're sleepy, we're agitated, and we're confused and doubting what's going on or ourselves. <laughs> you know sometimes it's like that, and even that it's like okay, multiple hindrance attack, whoa, you know. And yet, the fact that we can see it, we can recognize it, means we can start to find some space with it and develop some skill in working with all of these things. That we can start to find space in our experience right where we are, with the experience just as it is is because the experience itself does not define the totality of what is here. It's part of what's here, of course. We need to respect it. But it's not all of what's here. And and to the degree we don't fully understand that, we're bound and we're lost in what is appearing before us. Going back to the words of the Buddha that I shared at the beginning, this he said, Friends, this mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is afflicted by forces and attachments that come to visit it. Those who do not understand this, they do not cultivate their heart and mind. And he said, This mind is luminous, brightly shining, radiant. It is free of the afflictions and attachments which visit it. The wise who understand this cultivate their heart and mind. Understanding that there is this dimensionality of what is here right now, of what we could call life of truth, that is not bound by all of this. To be interested, to explore, to discover, to understand for ourselves what it is that that means for us. To rest. To come to rest in the fullness of what is right here and now. This is really the invitation of our practice Both its journey and its fulfillment and completion. So let's just sit quietly together for one or two minutes. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives come to recognize clearly the challenging forces that visit our minds and hearts at times and to work skillfully with them. And may we equally come to recognize the luminosity of heart and mind that is very much the ground and heart of our lives for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings